This is the word of God from Psalm 23. The psalmist describes God's loving guidance and care for his people. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Nick. I have the opportunity at serving as one of the pastors here at Sojourn, and we are just so grateful that you would be with us today, that you would gather with us. We are also thankful, and we also celebrate um, when our pastor, Isaiah, and Liz get an opportunity to just take a break, break and rest. They've had a couple weeks um, just away, um, resting, spend some time together, camping, and on some family land. We look forward to them returning next week, but something as a church that we prioritize is rest. And while pastoring is a gift, it is also, it can be something that can be taxing. So if you think about it this next week, pray for your pastor. Pray for Isaiah. Pray for Liz. Pray that God would restore their souls and as they step back in next week as he is preparing um, to preach with us next week. I think it's a great joy um, and it's very exciting, but it's also quite terrifying to preach Psalm 23. That might seem a little bit of an odd statement. Um, Psalm 23, as you know, is one of the most familiar psalms and passages in the Bible. And this familiarity can be a gift and a curse. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever walked into a restaurant and had your senses engaged from the moment that you walked in? Specifically, smells. I think about entering into a barbecue restaurant right? That's a pretty easy one. When you enter into a really good barbecue me- restaurant, there's an aroma that hits you right when you walk in, this aroma of smoked meats. And as you walk in, you know exactly what you're getting into. You're a little, you get, start getting a little bit excited as your mouth maybe begins to water, maybe your tummy begins to growl a little bit. And all of your best barbecue experiences and memories come rushing to the forefront of your mind. You've probably experienced this at some level. However, these experiences can have the exact opposite effect as well. I think about the five years or so that we spent in New Orleans during graduate school. And if you've ever been to New Orleans, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. When you walk to the French Quarter, there's this perfect combination of throw-up, human feces, trash, And alcohol (laughs) comes rushing in. And yes, if you're asking, it is a completely terrible experience. One of the things that we learned really quick is that locals don't really go down to the French Quarter because it smells. Sewage is coming up everywhere. 
But you know exactly what you're getting into when you start to smell that stench. It's terrible. But not all smells are neither good or bad. Um, Not all smells become familiar. I think about when I walk into someone's home. I always notice the distinct smell of that home, of that family. But I also recognize that I don't recognize the smell of my own home. When I walk into my own home, it's just there. I smell it all the time. I'm numb to the smell of my own home because there's a sense of familiarity that I experience when I walk into my home. In the same fashion, I think Psalm 23 can either evoke familiarity or numbness for each one of us. The gift of familiarity is intensified when we're experiencing troubles, and Psalm 23 becomes a lantern in the darkness. Maybe the gentle embrace of your pillow and mattress when you lay down at the end of a long day, and you go, just take that deep sigh. It's over. I get to rest now. Or maybe it's the kind hug from a family member or a friend when you experience a deep sense of loss. On the contrary to familiarity, Psalm 23 can cultivate a sense of numbness. It, can only take, it only takes one trip to Hobby Lobby, any quote-unquote Christian store. We would say Lifeway, but those aren't open anymore. To find a plethora of merchandise with Psalm 23 printed on it. Maybe you have something in your house with some of these verses on it. And the central phrase of, of the passage of, For you are with me, no longer captures your imagination in the way that our soul was intended to, to catch that and understand these verses. So today, as we look through Psalm 23, we will consider a common pursuit, attention, two postures, and the ultimate gift from God. But before we dig in, I want to give you a little bit of a preface this morning. I want to provide a little bit of guidance for this sermon. Typically, when we jump into it, we begin exegeting and expositing the text immediately. But you'll see we don't jump straight into Psalm 23. But I want you to pay close attention, careful attention to this quote-unquote buildup. This buildup is intended to move us away from, from, from numbness of this passage of this familiarity that we've experienced of Psalm 23, to, be, it, to move us to captivating our imagination, captivating the beauty that David intended when he penned Psalm 23. So a common pursuit. To set the stage for understanding Psalm 23, we must recognize that there is a common pursuit that unites us with David's story, and frankly to many more in our broader cultural moment. This common pursuit is often in disguise. It is often shaped and um, articulated in a very different way. Culturally, this common pursuit is is called a pursuit of happiness. In a 2006 article um, from the Wall Street Journal, six quote-unquote experts shared how they achieved it. They shared how they achieved the pursuit of happiness. And when they shared this, they gave four ways in which If you pursue these things, you will experience happiness. First, relishing the day and learning to celebrate the small things. Dodging traffic. 
Literally, moving closer to work is a key to happiness for this expert. Seeing friends. This expert actually needed to create a survey to, to find out that humans were created for community. Or, number four, buying memories. Your happiness level is boosted when you carefully spend your time and money. The illustration that this professor, this expert, uses to cement his finding, findings is realizing that he needed to marry his girlfriend to be happy. He needed to marry his girlfriend to be happy. He needed to propose to her. And I'm not sure how she would have felt about this, but it seemed a little odd if you ask me. Being married is great, but using this as an opportunity to buy your happiness completely misses God's design for marriage. Because if you've been married, <laughs> you know that marriage is difficult. Marry, marriage is hard. And if there's anything, it is probably the most sanctifying thing that you've ever done. So if you've heard these expert analysis about the pursuit of happiness, you've likely had one or of two responses. First, these aren't so bad. And to be honest, you're right. We can generally agree that celebrating the small things, avoiding traffic, being with friends and in community, and enjoying experiences are all good things. However, if someone comes to me at the end of this sermon and tell, tells me that they really enjoy traffic, we're going to set, set up a pastoral meeting because something is wrong with you. Traffic is absolutely terrible. On the other side of the coin, you might say that these, all of these things are trivial. And again, you are right. The good things that God provides can become idols or temporarily give us a glimpse of our Creator but they fail to provide eternal joy because we begin to replace our creator with the created things. In Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, he comments on Ecclesiastes 2. I'm going to read through Ecclesiastes 2, verses 4 through 11. And as I read through this, I won't be reading the whole entire passage. As I get to certain verses, I'm going to be showing you what the author pins in these passages as he, as he shares about the things that he acquires during his life. Verse 4, I've increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Verse 5, I made gardens and parks. Verse 6, I've constructed reservoirs. Verse 7, I've, I've acquired male and female servants. I've, I also own livestock large herds and flocks, more than all who were in before me in Jerusalem. Verse 8, I'm also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I've gathered male and female singers. Verse 9, I, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. And it sums up in verse 11. When I considered all that, all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and pursued and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Keller rightly articulates that this is an abiding human problem. There is plenty of modern empirical research 
that backs this up studies find a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And the more prosperous a society goes, the more common is depression. The things that human beings would think will bring fulfillment and contentment don't. He then asked, what should we do then to be happy? And you see, Psalm 23 moves us from a sense of happiness to true satisfaction. And I believe that this, this movement begins to reacclimate our perspective and desires to what is temporary to what is eternal. Maybe more appropriately, to who is eternal. Now that we've explored a common pursuit of this distinguishing between uh, happiness and true satisfaction, we have to understand the tension that Psalm 23 is illuminating for us. And this tension is birthed out of Psalm 23. It conflicts with the promise. The, what is birthed out of Psalm 23 really conflicts with, I think, what we want to experience, what we want to begin to pursue to find satisfaction. And I think to best articulate this, we're going to read what's called the anti-Psalm 23. The anti-Psalm 23 was written by late David Powson, and he writes this and he pins this as the exact opposite to Psalm 23. And if you Google this at any point, you'll find it. It's all over the internet. So here are the words. It's a little bit longer than Psalm, the actual psalm, so um, stick with me. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I've experienced a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark path. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility. Shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd ra rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone. Facing everything could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own needs, for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm, I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all of my days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Satire said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself, self. It's a living death, and then I die. Maybe that feels a little grim to you, but I suspect there's something in that anti-psalm that you resonate with. 
whether it's loneliness, whether it's pain. And Paulson expounds on the anti-psalm by saying, the anti-psalm tells us what life feels like and looks like whenever God vanishes from sight. The quote-unquote, I'm alone in the universe. That experience feels all too real. And the anti-psalm captures the drivenness and pointless, pointlessness of life, life's purposes that are petty and self-defeating. It expresses the fears and silent despair that cannot find a voice because there's no one really to talk to. Now, here's Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the path for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. And Pallison asks a profound question that I'll ask to you this morning. Can you taste the difference? Can you feel the difference between what God's word has for us this morning? You see, this tension that is experienced in the anti-psalm is all too familiar to David and to us because life is incredibly difficult and we are longing for reprieve from the pain of life. As I was considering this passage, I thought about an experience I had a couple years ago. It's a hiking um, experience. It's a hiking illustration. I was hiking the Appalachian Trail. And if you've ever hiked before, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, but I'll explain some of this. But on the trail, no one goes by their real names. When introducing yourselves, you always give your trail name. And your trail name is, in some ways, an identity mar- marker of some sort. It's always an interesting point of conversation. Because you do not name yourself. Instead, the trail names you. So there's always a good story that goes along with the trail name. And my trail name is Deadfall. I've earned this, and it was very painful, actually. Every night at, when you're hiking, um, you typically um, take all your um, food and you put it in a bag. And then you take that bag 50 feet from where you're camping, and you throw a rope over the tree, and you hang the bag. This is called your bear bag. Well, why would you do that? Well, you don't want a bear come, coming to knock on your tent or your hammock in the middle of the night. Well, this one time, uh, it was dark out already. We got to camp a little bit late, and I was with my father-in-law. So he takes the line, and he throws it over the branch. Um, like any good son-in-law, I go to retrieve the bottom of the line. And as I was reaching down to grab the bottom of the, the line that we threw over the tree, he decides to yank on the branch. Well, the branch, we call it a mini tree, came plummeting down on top of me. I mean, I fell out. It knocked me out for a moment. It hurt really bad. So a dead branch is called deadfall. So that's how I earned my name. While this seems cool and trail names become um, like a great point of conversation, they also become an alternate personality for some Hikers on the trail 
create new identities for themselves. It's an all-too-common story that I've heard while hiking the trail where people come and you're asking them their names and they give you their trail name and you ask, hey, what you doing? Like, what you hiking for? And very few people, is it just a hobby? There's some, but for many, it's a retreat from the pains of life. Themes of heartache, loneliness, and seemingly unbearable hurt drive people to leave and even run from something to find relief and hope. The trail culture is truly fascinating as people portray new identities to find healing and community. And this is the tension that we all experience, isn't it? Maybe not on the trail, but in our life in general. Pain and suffering are too much for us. But our response is that we seek everything but God. We seek everything but the only one that can truly provide comfort. David understood this pain. He understood what suffering was because he was hurt, but he also caused a lot of pain. David is very much the villain in other people's story, while he is also a son of God that experienced the grace of God. And this is where we land when we come to Psalm 23. We have to first understand that there is this common pursuit that we're all looking for something. We're all looking for a sense of peace. We're all looking for a sense of reprieve from the hardness, the pains of life. But there's this tension that we wrestle with. And the anti-psalm speaks to that. It speaks to the tension that we feel lonely, we feel hurt, and that we look to everything but God for reprieve and restoration. And just think, David is bringing us to Psalm 23. He is pinning this, and he, know, he doesn't know this, but it's going to be the hallmark of the Psalms. It is literally the pearl of the Psalms. This brings us to two postures that we're going to look at in Psalm 23 this morning. Two postures. And this commentator suggests that Psalm 23 was written at the end of David's life. So as David longs for God to provide supernatural rest, he pins a psalm as a person that experienced deep pain, but also knew of the deep comfort that we can find in Jesus. And I think about this when I think about what was this reprieve that he was looking for. So Sojourn, if you don't know this, we're part of a network, a group of churches called the Harbor Network. And the Harbor Network was just renamed to Harbor just three or four years ago. And I thought this was the perfect illustration to, for Psalm 23. The network was named Harbor out of a desire to be a place of rest for ships, or for the case of the network, for pastors, after they have been out to sea. The sea can be treacherous, and any weather-beaten ship needs a place to rest to be worked on. In the same way, David has been out to sea for far too long. And he knew the pains, the weather, the storms had beaten up on him quite a bit. Pain and heartache were just so, so familiar to him. And in that weariness, David penned Psalm 23 that would extend to us, to generations to come, to portray that there is refuge in the harbor. There is refuge in the harbor. So Psalm 23 for David carried immense weight carried immense weight because of the pain 
and because of the goodness of God. The seasoned believer in the room may resonate with this. You've been walking with God for a long time. You know pain. You know suffering. So you're, you, when, when you hear and when you, you sing tw- Psalm 23, it means something special. But I don't want to say that to minimize the pain of many others in this room. Because in reality, there's many of you in this room that maybe you're not a seasoned believer. Maybe that you haven't been walking with the Lord for a long time, but you have been living life for a long time. And many of you have experienced pain that you should have never experienced. Some of which maybe you have caused, but much of your pain is caused by others. Maybe those that were meant to protect you. And I believe Psalm 23 portrays the restoration that you've been looking for all of your life. Because there has probably been time after time where you've asked, where were you, God? And then David extending the safety of the the harbor for the weather-beaten soul, he does this by portraying two postures of Yahweh. Two postures of Yahweh. The first is the good shepherd in verses 1 through 4. And second is the gracious host in verses 5 through 7. The good shepherd, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valleys, I fear no danger. For you are with me, your rod And your staff, they comfort me. And I think it's safe to say that David is likely reminiscing at this moment. He is likely reminiscing on his youthful years when he was actually a shepherd. Because he knew the role of a shepherd, the care, the concern, and protection that you provide your sheep, your flock, was a known reality to David. Notice how the psalm begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. This preceding statement is significant. If you want to experience all the benefits of this refuge that you can find from Yahweh and Yahweh alone, you must declare that Jesus is king. You must declare that Jesus is king. You see, we were fallen, we were separated from God. And we see through the Old Testament, prophet after prophet, giving us glimpses of the hope and restoration, but all fell short. So God sent himself, his son Jesus, to come live a perfect life that none of us could live, to die a death that we all deserve, and he rose again on the third day, conquering sin, death, and hell. So as you long for restoration, as you long for a place of reprieve, look no further. We have found the person, the one that is eternal, the only one that can provide that. But... There's some of you in this room, and I understand that you have been following Jesus for a long time, and maybe this has become numb. Maybe you have become, you've grown weary of this. And so hear the words this morning from John chapter 10, 11 through 18. Because the reality is, before we get to that, there's no promise for life to be quote-unquote easy. David clearly expects life to be filled with darkness and danger. But we can trust in the comfort of Jesus. And in fact, David was a quite at a disadvantage compared to us. Because we know who this good shepherd is. He is Jesus. 
John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. Scatters them. This happens because he is, hired, he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And hear this. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep. He has other sheep that he constantly chases, that he goes after. Brothers and sisters, we have a good shepherd in Jesus so secondly, we see David portrays Yahweh as a gracious host for the weather-beaten soul. Verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The figure has changed. We have gone from the good shepherd to the gracious host, Yahweh is described as a host who, who bountifully entertains the psalmist at his, at his table. This mark of favor is public and unmistakable. Yahweh anoints the head. The reference is to, of, to perfumes which regularly accompanied banquets during this time. The overflowing cup is a symbol of the generosity of the host. He provides the joys as well as the necessities for life. Though the wicked are haunted by distress, the godly man anticipates nothing but goodness and mercy. He anticipates dwelling in the house of Yahweh forever. At the very least, the words anticipate a long life spent with communion with God in his earthly dwelling, the tabernacle. Probably David was alluding to the hope of dwelling in a heavenly abode with the Lord. Does this sound familiar? I reference this, this passage, this parable often, because I believe it is so powerful. In your Bibles, you'll see in Luke 15, the prodigal son, but I, as I've shared before, I think it is far more appropriate to be the parable of the gracious father. The gracious father. Verses 20 through, through 24 in Luke 15 say this, but the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this is my son. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So then they began to celebrate. Yahweh provides refuge and gives abundantly for those he calls sons and daughters. And this is the good news. It doesn't matter what you've done. Maybe you resonate with the prodigal son. Doesn't know what you have squandered away. God welcomes you wholeheartedly every day. And he wants to dine with you. He wants to show you that he is a good shepherd and the gracious host. So we've explored a common um, pursuit, we've explored attention, and we've explored two postures of Yahweh, but we have still yet to uncover the climax of Psalm 23. So as we conclude, we will explore the ultimate gift from God, the ultimate gift from God. And you see, the ultimate gift from God is dead center in the middle of the psalm. 
And maybe you've read past it too quickly. Maybe you've read this quickly and you don't see it. While David has experienced deep heartache, he has also experienced and is proclaiming the security that we have in Yahweh. And it says this, For you are with me. For you are with me. Doesn't that bring us so much comfort? Whether your shepherd, whether it is the shepherd who protects and leads his sheep, or a gracious host who provides abundantly, he is with us. There is not a greater message in all the world. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God's presence was behind a curtain called the Holies of Holies, the tabernacle. And this was, in many ways, I guess the inner sanctuary where God dwelt. But for us, because of Christ Jesus, God dwells among us. He is with us. For those who have repented of their sins and given their life to Jesus, He is with you. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the good news that we all need. It redefines our pursuits. It gives meaning to the tensions of pain and gives us a new expectation of hope. So if you know Christ this morning... Maybe this is numb, as we've talked about. Maybe you've experienced the salvific nature of Jesus in your life. But you've grown weary of this because pain is real. Heartache is real. Life is extremely hard. And God has likely felt distant at times. So here's Psalm 23 this morning as a reminder for you that He is safety. He is your harbor for your weather-beaten soul. And so you've experienced this, but the tension for each one of us is that we begin to look elsewhere for this safety, for this reprieve, for rest. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is an invitation to those, for you to experience this forever security that can only be found in Christ Jesus. So the simple question for you this morning, if you don't know Jesus... It's a big question, but it is simple. Will you repent of your sins and give your life to Jesus? Because if you've been sitting here and you're experiencing like, I want that, I want to experience that safety, that is not me, that is not by chance, that is the Holy Spirit knocking at your door. That is the Lord knocking at your door telling you that He wants to be king over your life and He is, he is begging you to let Him in. He is begging you to invite him into your life. So as we end this morning, I'm going to end with something that Palson, the writer of the anti-Solom song, wrote. Jesus puts it this way, brothers and sisters. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your Father in heaven wants to protect you. And he wants to provide for you. God is good. There is nothing greater in all the world. We all need restoration. We all need reprieve from the storm. Let's look no further than to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 23. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of pain, Father, it is a bright light reminding us who King Jesus is. 
is reminding us who you are. Father, and there's something that unites all of us in this room, no matter where we're from, no matter our backgrounds, no matter the worldview that we attain, is that we've experienced pain. We've experienced heartache. And we're all looking for reprieve, but Father, we know that we can look no further than to you. Father, you are the King of kings. It is your righteousness that we long for. It is the hope that we find when we get to lay down next to quiet pastures, next to the, and just rest, Father. So, Father, as we continue to worship, may we experience the goodness of a good shepherd. May we experience the goodness of a gracious host this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.